Yes, and I want to greet you tonight in Jesus' name. This is a real special blessing to have this Thursday evening of worship together, and all of you are very welcome to be here. And I also appreciate some of these dear folk in this community have been visiting us various evenings, and you are certainly welcome here with the rest of us. May God bless you. And we should not have any spectators in this service. You should all be participants. And so don't come for what others can bring to you. You come also with what you can bring to us. That is what worship is all about. And I'd like to just ask you to do something with, for me here. I'd like you to turn to 439 in that hymn book we just had. I'll tell you a little bit about this song before we sing the first and the last verse here. We'll just sing the first and the last. Uh, along about 1982, we had our first meetings, 81, 82 in those years. Four of us met together in a restaurant in North Camden, Ohio, and we were sitting together discussing the possibility of starting an adult level training situation there, school for workers in Christ's kingdom, especially focusing and interested in preparing school teachers for Christian day schools. And I was well aware that as Conservative people, we were putting a tremendous amount of effort into preparing school curriculum. And if you uh, follow the studies there, about 80% of what a student takes out of a class or out of a series of studies is what he's got from the life of his teacher, and about 20% of it comes from the textual material that he is studying. And we were making tremendous effort in doing textual materials, but not much effort in preparing teachers, and we felt that we should do something about that deficiency. And so Faith Builders was born that is now in Guys Mills, Pennsylvania. And this song that we have in this page was our theme song as a group of four brothers that met together frequently planning for this, what turned out to be Faith Builders educational programs. The name changed several times over those years. But this was our theme song. We sang it often together, four brothers singing four different parts. And I'd like if you would help me sing tonight the first and the last stanza of this hymn. O Lord of hosts, all hymn possessing, I believe it's probably the favorite song of the brother who compiled this hymn book. And I sang it with him many, many times in those early years of what is now Faith Builders. So uh, you'll be sitting for quite a while. Why don't you stand to sing this? O Lord of hosts, O Thank you. 
And I've tried over the years to at least one service in a week of meetings, if not more than that, but particularly and specifically to focus on a message that enhances, that promotes, that teaches the uh, a clearly distinctive Pilgrim Church position. If you don't know what I mean by that, I, I, you really do need to know, and I'll try to help you understand what that means. And I want to do that tonight on this Thursday evening because we have a rather busy end of the week here, and so I don't have very many more opportunities to do that. I wanted to do it tonight. Our preaching and our practice should clearly identify us with the doctrine and position of the Pilgrim Church. Now just what does that mean? It might mean different things to different people. I'll try to set, share with you what it means to me. When I refer to the Pilgrim Church, I'm not talking about a denomination or a conference. I'm talking about something that's been around the world ever since the day of Pentecost. So I'm referring to the primitive purity of the early church before the hybrid union of church and state, which came along with that Constantinian shift there along about 312. Those who see the Constantinian model as the triumph of the church are not of a pilgrim church position. And whereas at that time there was a uniting of cross and sword, a union of church and state, today the hybrid is an old wholesome alliance of the church and the culture. The modern gospel, which is neither modern nor is it gospel at all, makes provision for that unwholesome accommodation between church and culture. One of the ways to help us identify a pilgrim church concept of the Christian life is to observe how it views the teachings and the influence of one Augustine, a theologian from Northern Africa. He is considered to be a father of the universal church claimed by Catholics and Protestants alike. Each one says that he is the father in their church. Is this gentleman, this man who wrote the theology of the hybrid model and plunged the church into the dark ages for 1,000 years? It would take me several hours to explain to you historically what I just read to you from this paper. But I will just say this about Augustine and his theology. I said he wrote the theology for the hybrid church. So you don't know what I mean by that, so I'll give you a little idea. When you, had to, when you take a map of geography and place a map of the church on top of it so that everybody that's part of this geography is part of the same church, you know very well you don't have Christians living there, you have something else. You have a Christianized population if you baptize them at eight, years, eight days of age, but you don't have Christians. So how are these people going to get to heaven because the Bible does teach holiness? So what are you going to do about that? Well, the theologian took care of that. Between death and the eternal world, he placed a purgatory. So anything that wasn't fixed up and prepared to enter the glory gates could get taken care of there. And then, of course, since that's not enough, we've got to do some other things to work on this purgatory problem. So we have 
nine days of special prayer and offerings to the priesthood to help extricate that soul from purgatory. That's one example. Or if you have a situation where everyone inside the geography must be part of the universal church, and every you have a dissenting group meeting in a cave someplace or in some old farmhouse, or in the woods someplace behind the village, and they're not part of this unit, we've got to do something about that, so holy war is invented. And persecution which led later to torture and death for the descendants became part of that theological plan. And the unfortunate thing about that is that not only did Augustine devise that, but Martin Luther underscored it. And I'm not going to take time tonight to show you the Bible verses that they used to vindicate and to justify that kind of theology. And we keep on going and name the things that had to be invented that are not in the Bible so that this model of a church and state being one can fit on some kind of a biblical platform. So we had to rewrite the theology. That's what Augustine did. Pilgrim church people throughout all time have never accepted, accepted that teaching, have never accepted that model. Yet during the same time, I mentioned the 1,000 years, you've, you've heard that term, dark ages. Down until the present day, the faithful testimony of the Pilgrim Church has never been totally extinguished, though it came very close to being in some places and times of history. Some years ago, there appeared on Christian bookshelves in the particular paper that I have in my hand here, the word Christian is inside of quotes. You can't see that when I say those words, but that's what's written here. The book was written by a modern-day Augustinian titled The Gospel Solution. And I'm gonna, I plan to preach from the Bible tonight and not from that book. But I want you to listen to what comes next. This text sought to reconcile what it called the hard sayings of Jesus, those are the very words used in that book, with the liberating claims of the gospel. It sought to explain the claims for what they considered to be legalistic obedience, works, religion, in light of the free grace offered by the gospel as they understood it, as this writer understood it. And so the title was The Gospel Solution, and what you'd like to know is what was the solution? According to Tim Weaver, the author of that book, living in a western state in this country, the answer was this, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not gospel at all. There is no gospel taught nor intended to be found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That the only gospel found in his first four books of your New Testament is found in the Gospel of John. The legalistic teaching, the moral ethics of the first three so-called Gospels was Jesus' attempt to prepare the Jewish nation for the Gospel which then was revealed in John and in some of the later epistles. And so there are a lot of hard things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And how we explain that 
Because you know very well that no Christian can live that. No congregation is able to maintain that kind of position. And what are we going to do with Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, we found out, we discovered, that that's not gospel at all. That was just simply Jesus teaching Jews, helping them see the, the high ethics of Old Testament law so that they would be prepared for what they read later and heard later in the Gospel of John. I don't know what you think when you hear that introduction, but by saying those words, I'm trying to prepare you for what we'd like to do tonight. I'm anxious to get to this Bible because that's where we find the gospel solution, not in a book that was written in the state of Washington. But I must take you farther. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have what he calls here the hard sayings of Jesus. That speaks of a repentance, those three books do, but they never mention the word believe. You get that? Did you know that's the way your Bible's written? The word believe is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the word repentance is never found in John. Did you know that? John uses believe nearly 100 times, I think 99 times. Never uses repentance. Acts mentions both the epistles. Stress believe, repentance is found very few times in all the epistles. Revelation, ending the New Testament, in this very interesting way that uses repentance many times and refers to, uses the word belief never. Or believe not any time. So they tell us the gospel comes from comes to us first of all in the book of John. The hard external legalism of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then according to them, is not the message of the gospel. I'm going to give you examples of some of those hard teachings. What they call hard teachings of Jesus. The difficult ethical teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, you, you're acquired that many theologians today do not consider that the Sermon on the Mount is applicable to the Christian life. It's relegated to some of the time in history and not intended for a Christian to live it. It's also one of the ways that you can identify the Pilgrim Church, Pilgrim Christians throughout all history, from Pentecost to now, have always believed in the efficacy of the Sermon on the Mount for the Christian faith and, and testimony. Matthew, Mark, and Luke stress that repeated phrase from Christ concerning self-denial, death to self. In those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's time again it's spoken of that if we cannot forgive others, we cannot expect to be forgiven. In that book, there's an entire chapter on times when it is absolutely impossible for anyone to forgive wrongs that have been done to them. Christ never intended for that to be part of a Christian testimony and Christian understanding. That's what the gospel solution says. The rigorous view of marriage that permits no divorce is looked at as a hard saying of Jesus. It's not found in John. The fearful warnings of hellfire.
the exacting demands that require us to ignore our feelings in order to extend kindnesses to our enemies. Something is found strongly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The great danger of wealth found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially in Luke. The stress laid on external obedience are all found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Until last you come to John, you find the saving gospel of grace. This is what is posed to us as the gospel solution. But this is not only modern or recent teaching. Our friend Martin Luther was of a strong pilgrim church persuasion in the early years of his Bible study, in his contest down there at the Diet of Worms. He was, uh, he did a lot of writing, expressing his feelings. He just wished that in this whole world of where he was in Germany, where the map of the state, the map of the church was the same thing. He just said he wishes he could collect together a few people that truly believed God and only they would observe the Lord's Supper together and they would form a fellowship, a committed brotherhood of brothers together and they would be completely apart from this other, I think he called it the chusma in Spanish and in your word that would be uh, the, uh, it, it meant the, the, the masses. But, on the way home from the Diet of Worms, he was arrested. He thought he was being arrested. He wasn't. He was being salvaged by the elector there. Some horsemen came, took him out of his carriage, took him to a castle. He was held, he thought he was being held captive. He wasn't. He was giving security. No one else could find him. And during that period of time there in that castle, in that tower, he learned the value of the protect, protection of the state for the new church formula, formula he was coming up with. And from that time forward, identified himself completely with the Augustinian model. He's the one that you are quite well acquainted with that calls the book of James an epistle of straw. There's no gospel in it as far as he's concerned. No new birth in it. No grace in it. No faith in Christ in it. There's 104, there's 108 verses in the gospel, in the book of James, five chapters, 108 chapters. Verses have 54 commandments in there. You can read through the book of James sometime and see if you can find those 54 commands in only 108 verses. That's uh, one command for every two verses in the, gospel, in the book of James. He saw that ethics, he saw all that legality, as he called it, epistle of straw. He also felt that only in the book of John do we find gospel teaching, not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This was changes that came to him after his, after he aspired to the Constantinian model, the Augustinian theology. He did not start that way. I told you when that change came. For him, the gospel was found in two main places of the Bible, the Gospel of John and the, and the book of Romans. It's not a text tonight, but I'm just going to read it to you. He translated the New Testament into the vernacular of the Germans. And we got to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. He added a word there that's not in the Greek text. It's not in your English Bible. It's not in our Spanish Bible either. 
Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. He added the word alone after the word faith in that verse. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone without the deeds of the law. Something he's well known for. So here we are tonight, and I gave you this very, very brief introduction, and it's hours of study there, but this is just a very, very quick, wide brush overview. How should we understand this that we're hearing? And I would like to uh, take you on a little Bible journey. And... Uh, and just see how this compares with the, what we just heard. I'm not going over that again, but you remember the Matthew, Mark, and Luke thing? And you remember John over here. You remember that there's some epistles that just have this gospel well spelled out. That's where it's truly found. And, and then there are others where it's just simply absent. So if you have to keep that in mind, then you'll be able to follow what we do for the rest of the time. And I will not be able to take time to go back to make those connections for you every time I bring you up a situation or a teaching. I gave you here now, if in your hearing, a list of teachings that some Christians today are supposing kind of no way possible apply to a Christian. You cannot be lived, not intended to be lived. Gospel frees you. If not set you free from that, you were set free from those works when the gospel came. We want to see if that is true. I'd like to look at a text tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is not in Matthew, Mark, nor Luke, nor John. But I'd like to notice what verses 3 and 4 say here. And maybe down to verse 6. And of course, maybe verse 3 would make a bit more sense if we read the last verse of the last sentence of verse 2. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise, he consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words where of cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputes of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposedly that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I'd like to say a couple words about verse 3. We dare never minimize the teaching of our Lord Jesus. We dare never say what Jesus said here doesn't matter. What Jesus said here doesn't count. What Jesus said here does not apply to us. We can't do that with any of the teachings of Jesus. Any of the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus. Especially when those words of our Lord Jesus are intended to do something in our lives and our hearts. It's intended, it says in this verse, to produce godliness in us. Our Lord Jesus is, is the Logos of God. He is the very Word of God. I think your Bible, your KJV, translates Logos Word. Uh, whenever, I think that's the main translation that's given for Logos in your Bible. He's the very Word of God, the Logos of God. The most complete revelation of God and His will to man. His words are wholesome. They're filled with spirit and life. They're anointed with divine authority. This man teaches us as one as authority and not as the scribes. That's not found in John. And they produce in us who believe godly living, Christ-like living. 
And I told you some places where the word repent is found and some places where the believe is found. You might not remember anything that I said, but I started in Matthew and ended in Revelation. But I want to talk to you about those two words. Those two words are not a dichotomy. They are not a contrast. Those words are not in contradiction one to another. Repent is not some kind of a hard legalistic exercise that someone's called upon to produce in their life, whereas believing is of a sudden the reception of divine grace. There are two compliments to the same truth. There are two compliments to the new birth, to being born from above. Repentance, as you know in Greek, is metanoa, which means literally to receive a new mind. And when repentance happens, not only do we start thinking differently from the way we thought before, but we think with a new mind from what we had before. We don't only change the way the thing operates, but we change the entire equipment. If you would use your language nowadays, we'd say you get rid of the whole set of software and replace it with something completely new. Outwardly, the computer looked the same. If your hair was white, it still is. And if you had a Roman nose, you still do. But inside, the mind is different. The mind is new. Repentance is a new mind. A, a complete change of the mind. We took the old one out, put a new one in. That's repentance. And if a new mind is what you have, which is what the literal interpretation of Metanoa is, then you know very well that that's the same as saying you have a new heart. And that takes you back to Ezekiel 36. It tells you there that this whole renewal of your life is a receiving of a new heart. And that's where it tells you, if you don't remember that passage, it takes a stony heart out of you and gives you a heart of flesh. It's a brand new piece of equipment. It's something you did not have before. And when a Christian starts thinking with that new mind, it's something very internal. And sometimes there's a slight danger in congregations to make external impositions. That is true. Whoever has a concern about that, that is a valid concern. And it is easier to get someone to change something outside than it is to get, have this miraculous change that we heard about tonight on the inside. It is easier to get someone to conform than to have them transformed. It is easier to say, and I'm going to make this statement, I don't, I don't even know if I feel safe in making this statement, but I'll, I'll say it so that you get it. We, we can actually train people to stop being conformed to the world in an external sense, and then we turn around and ask them to conform to a church. And we really haven't gained much ground by doing that. Is it okay if I say that? Is that safe enough? That's a little dangerous, maybe. But that happens. But when a person's mind is changed, the mind is transformed. There's a renewing of the mind. A lot of things happen with that change, with that metanoia. One of the things is that I begin to think about God in ways I never thought about him before. I thought God was against me, imposing his restrictions upon me, limiting my ability and my freedom. He, he is imposing his structures upon me. He is taking my freedoms away from me. He, I'm in this restricted business. I won't do that. I have people tell me in Costa Rica that, that I know what you're doing is right, but I can't do it because I, 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 I just know what it would cost me, and I can't do that. 
but they're thinking with their original equipment. If they had a new mind, they would think differently about that. They would see this new change in their life as God sees it. They would see what those angry words are doing to their marriage. They would see what that television set is doing to their children. They would see that, but they don't see it because their mind is wrong. And for me to simply unplug their television set from their house will not do the job. It won't get it. We've got to do something in here. We have to change that mind. We have to change the heart, change the way they think about it. And when a person is repentant, he he, with this new mind, we think differently about God. And instead of seeing these things as restrictive against me, we find that it's all for me and for my good. And he tells us that back in Deuteronomy. These commandments I give you are for your good. And when a person realizes that, the whole world changes. The Bible is a brand new book. And I need it to be for you that way tonight. A new book. It changes my attitude towards myself. I'm the kingpin. I'm the top of it. I'm, uh, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Until I have a new mind. And all of a sudden I'm a child. All of a sudden I'm poor of spirit. And of such is the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden there's a great desire for pureness of heart. All of a sudden there's a great change there. And there's mercy comes into, that, into play there. And it's not very hard at all to forgive somebody else. Because I realize from what I've needed to be forgiven. And my attitude towards myself changes. I think with a brand new mind about myself. And of course that affects other people. It also affects the world I live in. I look at this culture differently from the way I did. It's amazing to see people that were greatly involved in terrible things that are not able to continue in those things. They see it completely different from what they did. It's interesting to see someone converted from the drug world. You work with a person like that, take them through instruction class, take them to baptism, bring them into the congregation. You see the great change in the way they think about what they used to do in the world they were in. The collegas was what they were working, the responsibility or the, the, uh, the, the network that they were involved in. And you see the great difference as they think about that. This is metanoa. This is a new mind. This is repentance. This is what happens to us. We, we receive a brand new mind. This thinking differently about myself, you notice how that happened to Job when he repented. I, I repent. I poured myself in dust and ashes. He, he told God, this is, I, this is, you know, and, and Job was not that bad. He was not that far off. I wish I would be, be where Job was before this all happened to him. I wish I'd be at least that far. And he, he saw himself. I, 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 I repent in dust and ashes. That whole matter of seeing the world, the culture around us, different than what we saw before. We see that in Rahab. She lived in Jericho. That was part, part of her life. She was part of this whole thing. And now she's scared of it. She knows something's happening here. She can't be part of this. She's got to identify with something else. How do I get out of this Jericho? What do I do here? And there's a wall around her. And she, she sees an army outside. And she brings her family there and closes the door. And she, she doesn't turn on her television set to see what the latest news report is. And she's not watching Fox. There's no social media coming in through that closed door. She's finished with this thing. She's, she has a new outlook, completely new. She's looking at life all the other different from what she did. She looked at the whole culture differently from what she saw before because she's converted. Because she's repentant. She has a new mind. 
And she had a chance right there in her own house to hear the testimony of men of God, people of God, the Israelites there, that come into her door, and she could see firsthand how this works. That's what we're in this world for, to do the same thing to other people. The Rahab's still out there. They're not all in yet. Not all of them have red cords sticking out the back window. We need to get more cords out there. This new heart is what Jesus is describing for us in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's the book of Matthew, by the way. Excuse me, Tom Weaver, Tim Weaver, but it's in the book of Matthew. What we call the Beatitudes, Christ is describing that new heart. And what he's saying then in those Beatitudes is, in order to live this sermon, in order to carry out these, this manner of life, to change from the way that you normally see people respond to life circumstances, and to then respond in this way over here that I'm teaching you, it takes this new kind of heart. And he describes this for us there, in chapter 5, starting in verse 3. It goes down through there until we are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And when that great change comes to us, we're prepared to walk with him in discipleship and know him as Lord of our lives. So that's repentance. That's very, very brief. I'm sorry. That, that takes several sermons, but that's, that was a quick one. Now, believing, what is that? Believing then unites us with Christ. It's the simplest explanation. Faith is that pin that goes between the great big tractor sitting there behind that house of us there. That thing is big. I don't know what that thing can pull. I guess it'd be easier to describe what it can't pull. That thing has enough of Paul power on there to, I don't know what all can do. But can you imagine... That you're back here and you're this piece of equipment that can't do it, can't move, can't run, can't accomplish it, can't turn the soil, can't do anything. And all this great big power is in front of you. And he backs that thing up to you where you're, where you're sitting and puts that pin in there. When that thing pulls forward, you're going along. Every place it goes, you go. And all it can do, you can do. Because it's there, you can be there. And because it can do it, you can do it. And you, and you look back and see all that dirt fly, and you see all these 30 feet of who knows what being turned over, turned under, and you say to yourself, I'm doing it. But, but no, there's a pin up there. It's connected. Somebody's pulling that thing forward. That's faith. We, we receive because we believe. And we receive as we believe. And to the extent we can believe, we receive more. And that's why faith in the Christian life is an ever-increasing faith. We haven't just seen what all God could do in our lives. We have not gotten there yet. We got this far. That's all the further we got. And a Christian lives under the open heaven with the assurance that faith tomorrow can be more than it is today as I believe him more and see him, see him do more. And one of the reasons why Christ had such faith in his Father, one of the reasons why Christ believed so strongly what, what God could do was because he lived with it every day and saw evidence of it. And then when I get live under some kind of a cloud in the... Uh, the storm blows is on top of me there, and the clouds are dark, and I don't see through to heaven, and I don't, I'm, I've lost that touch with God. And I'm not in prayer with Him, and His Word is not speaking to my heart, and I don't, I'm not out there in useful in His service, and I don't see what God is doing, and I lose the conviction, and lose the faith, and lose the hope that we have in God, and Christ never lost that. He knew it perfectly, because He knew the Father perfectly. He knew that I don't know Him perfectly. But Christ did it perfectly, and he's us, and we can be hooked to him, we can be connected to him, we can have that faith in him. And that's the faith that produces in our lives that great decisive difference. 
It's Christ at work in us. It's not what we are doing. We saw that on Monday night. That's what faith does. That's what believing does for us. It's not just pie in the sky by and by. It's not just a fire escape. It's not just an insurance policy. It's not some kind of legal transaction, some kind of forensic righteousness that makes me different from what I was before and makes God look at that strange robe that was draped over top of me so he doesn't see my ugliness and my need. He sees something holy and beautiful and so I'm included in. But my life is the same as it always was. Faith doesn't do that to us. Faith is transform, transformation. And there's a new life here. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. But the words believe, trust, and obey in your Bible are not only synonyms in Greek. Believe, trust, and obey. But they also come from the same root. When John is teaching us to believe, he is telling us to obey. I will show you that in John 3, 36. It's the last verse of the third chapter. He that believeth in the Son of God hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. There are translations of this verse. That would read like this. He that believeth the Son hath everlasting life, and he that disobeyeth, or obeys not the Son, shall not see life. Our Spanish Bible is between that translation I just gave you and the one you have in the Bible that I just read to you. Spanish says this. He that believeth in the Son hath everlasting life, and he that refuses to believe the Son shall not see life. And refusing to believe is a choice to disobey. I can say it to you like this, that might be easy for you to understand. The only Bible evidence of saving faith is a life of obedience. That's the only Bible evidence of saving faith in the life of anyone. If you want to find a Bible proof for that, just go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read down through there, and you'll find that those who believed obeyed. And I don't know, I, well, my friend Martin Luther is not here for me to ask him this question, so I'll ask you. He thought the book of Romans was the epitome of the, of the explanation of gospel doctrine, the doctrine of the gospel. He found that in Romans, found the theological explanation for it, and he found the teaching of the gospel in John and found the explanation of how it works in your life in the book of Romans. But I'd like to ask you something. It might it be that this is the reason why Romans uses the word obey and obedience more than any other word in the New Testament because it's very strong in emphasizing the work of faith in the Christian life. And the only evidence of faith is obedience. Is that why that word is found in Romans, Brother Mark, Martin Luther, more than found any place else in the New Testament? I can agree with those who would feel, and I would be of this persuasion myself, I agree that John, the Gospel of John, explains 
as does no other writer, how the saving life of Christ becomes the transforming power in our lives to produce spiritual fruit and ever-increasing faith. John explains that. Jesus explains it in the Gospel of John like it's explained nowhere else. You see that especially in the Gospel of John in chapters 14, 15, and 16. Those are the deepest chapters in all of your Bible. Jesus never took his disciples, the 11 of them that were still with him when he spoke those words, so deep into his relationship with God and his desired relationship with them. It was an extremely deep study. And it's my favorite portion of scripture in the Bible. But dear brothers and sisters, the hard sayings of Christ as someone has called them are not only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For those of you who are Bible readers and you're, you tend to think ahead of the preacher and you know where he's going and you make your analogies and you scan ahead, you see where he's gone, you see where the introduction is going to lead to some conclusions and you've already done what I'm going to do now for you, but some of the others you have not caught up yet, so I'm going to help you stay with us. You're going to find those hard sayings of Christ in the Gospel of John. You're going to find them in the book of Romans. You're going to find them in other New Testament epistles. I'll just give you a couple of examples, and that's not the purpose of the message tonight, so I'm not going into that too very far, but just for a couple of examples. Non-resistant love is a major theme in the book of Romans, in chapter 12 especially, chapter 13, In that same book, you can find God's will concerning divorce. You'll need to go to Matthew to learn that. No one speaks with more warning about this world and its evil works than what John does. It was not Matthew, nor Mark, nor Luke that said, be not conformed to this world. That was Paul. And so it is with forgiveness and poverty of spirit and humbleness of mind. It is the evidence of the life of Christ in the believer. And, and is that not, is this not a hard saying? Would you go to John chapter 8? And my Bible is still open here to John 3, where I had read from verse 36. And now in chapter 8, we begin reading at verse 37. Is this a hard saying? What would you call this? I know that you're Abram's seed, but ye seek to kill me because of my word which hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. I'll just pause there to give you a little interesting insight. This did not Abraham. If, if you want to be a child of Abraham, if Abraham is your father, then no one should ever say to you, this did not Abraham. If you want to be a child of God, and God is your father, then looking at your life, someone should not say to you, this did not God. 
If we want to be a child of the Lord Jesus and, and, his, and have him be our elder brother, and he, we are birthed of him and born of him, and we live like him and we are one with him, someone should not say to me, Brother Dale, this did not Jesus. But Jesus said to them, this did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they say to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceed, proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you now, why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Logos. You don't get it. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is the liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Hard words to hear from the book of John. It is in John, the Gospel of John, where Jesus stands before Pilate and defines the two kingdoms. And I could go on and on like that. I'm, I won't take more of your time doing that, but I do want to invite you to open your Bible to 1 John, the letter of 1 John. There is no doubt that the writer of this first letter, 1 John, as you have it in your Bible, is the same as the writer of the fourth gospel. The similarities between these two, this letter and the fourth gospel, are very abundant. This John is the only writer in the Bible that calls Jesus the Logos of God. He did that in John, the beginning of the, the first verse of his gospel. He did the first verse here. That word is logos there, the third to last word in your first verse. The logos of life. John is the one who uses the word paracletos to refer to Christ's concern and care for us and that Holy Spirit then which Christ sends to us. The Holy Spirit is Christ's paracletos for us, sent to us because Christ wants us to have that work of the Holy Spirit done in our lives. John uses that same word. In chapter 2, verse 1, where your Bible has the word advocate, that's parakletos in Greek. The teaching on faith, on love, and on life are found in this book, this letter, in the Gospel of John, like they're found nowhere else. I'd like you to notice something here in chapter four, 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. This is one of two definitions for sin that John has in this first letter. Sin is the transgression of the law. He has another definition later on and a deeper definition later on and one that would cause anyone to fall on their knees and say, God, save me, spare me, fill me, purify me, anoint me. 
And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifested, the children of the devil. Whosoever doth doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Rather hard saying. Chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we all do that ye also be a fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This that is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Chapter 2 verse 15. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And what happens to those who love the world and the lust thereof? What happens to them? But I'd like to do something this evening with you in this Short letter of five chapters. I'd like to see you, to help you see the holy standard that John's gospel requires of us. And I'm aware that this first letter of John is focusing on the evidence of the life of Christ that is found in human experience. And when John writes this, these five chapters, he has one thing in mind. I want you to know the evidence that the world needs to see in us as Christians, that you need to see in each other as Christians, that as you meet together for communion service on Sunday morning, you have the full assurance of faith that this evidence that we have written, recorded here in this book is found in the lives of those brothers and sisters that share that cup and bread. And John is using this to explain that very clearly to us. The evidence of the life of Christ in the human heart. We're going to take a little journey. Let's just walk down through a few interesting things in this, in this letter. John chapter 1 verse 7. I told you that we're going to find here, and I'm only going to focus on verses, where it shows us the close relationship of the living Christ, the ascended Lord, the anointed Christ, reigning and ruling and controlling and empowering your life and mine wherever we are tonight. And so that the end result of all this that happens to us is a Christ-likeness in our character, in our testimony. Chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he 
walks in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have that communion service on Sunday morning. In the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Forgiveness is conditional here. It's as conditional here as it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a part we have to do here. And that light is shining in Christ. And so if that light is shining in the life of Christ, the only thing you see there's light, there's no darkness at all. That's the model. That's the standard for myself, for all of us as Christians. Chapter 2, verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked, or live even as he lived. Otherwise, there's no validity in saying that I abide there. I have not by faith chosen to be there. The pin is not between the tractor and the disc. I don't go along where it goes. I cannot do what it can do. The power is there, but it's not mine. I can't say that I abide in him. And then I'm not walking as he walked. There's no higher standard for the Christian life in all the Bible than this verse. And Paul said near the end of his life that he has not attained this. He said he's still following after. He said he's still pressing towards this mark. I suppose that the, and I don't want to put something in here that John does not have in mind. I certainly don't want to say anything that Christ wouldn't agree with. But I suppose that both John and our Lord Jesus are aware of something. I suppose that they understand. That the attainment of this thing, the attainment of this in my life, so I can say that I've reached it, I've done it, I, I have it, I've got it, is not the main thing. But anyone looking on can say, you can certainly tell what direction he is going. And Christ looking on with his free and Holy Spirit that he gives to our lives can say, I feel at home dwelling here because I have the constant opportunity to help him reach this. And I suppose the holiest thing we can do in life is aim for it. I suppose the holiest thing we can do in life is have this as our constant desire to be aiming that direction. But I can't help it. Verse 6 is a powerfully strong verse. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. And there's no one here tonight that's going to raise your hand and say, I've proven that. I know what that's like. I've done that. Do you think I'm right about that, Brother Ellis? Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he, that's Christ, is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. What? What? See, we read that and jump over it because we're ready to start chapter 3. But no, no, we're not. We're in verse 29. If you know that he, that's Christ, is righteous, and, and we do know that he is righteous because Chapter 2, verse 1 has already told us, My little children, these things write out to you that ye sin not. 
And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so he says, if we know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Here we could pause for a long time. We won't have time to do this tomorrow night for the youth. So I'll do it tonight. The word righteousness, when English language was first being put together, was first being spoken, was not righteousness, it was right-wiseness. That's the way the word was said. And wherever you have the word righteousness in your Bible, here you put right-wiseness in there. You say, Brother Dale, that makes less sense yet. I don't know what right-wiseness is. I don't know if I know what righteousness is. I think it means being good, but I'm not sure. Well, don't we have a clock around here someplace? It's, well, it's way back there. And the... Uh, you, you people have these digital clocks, and that doesn't work, so I can't use that for example. But let's just think about that clock in the back that has hands and runs around. And so you know, you don't know the word right-wise, but you know the word clockwise. And you know that when something goes clockwise, you know what direction it goes. And when something goes counterclockwise, it goes the opposite direction. And you're well acquainted with that. You farmers, you mechanics, you know there are threads on a bolt that are clockwise and counterclockwise. Am I right about that? You know that. And so when something is right-wise, it goes the right way. When something is clockwise, it goes where the clock goes. And when you and I are doing righteousness, when we go right-wise, we go the same direction Christ goes. And when we're not doing something in righteousness, we're going backwards from the way Christ goes. And if we're righteous, it's because that same life and righteousness of God is in our hearts. And now to go back to Romans again, which is some people's favorite book, that says that that's where all this truth is truly found... The righteousness of God is the theme of that book, and righteousness is found in that book more than any other place, I think, in all the Bible. Certainly more than any place else in the New Testament. It's the theme of that book. Righteousness of God. It doesn't only talk about that, but tells us that it should be ours. And not only tells us that, but tells us how to get it. It says every time that that righteousness of God is ours by faith. The first thing we do is we believe this. We believe that Christ is righteous. And we believe that he being mine, he makes my clock start turning in the right direction. And this is John speaking here. This is not Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Chapter 3, verse 3. Yes, I will say this yet. Before we jump away from here, it's so important. Would you please remember that it was the book of Matthew. It was in chapter 5 and verse 20. Where Mark, where Matthew agrees with John 100%. And he says to all of us there, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall know what's in the kingdom of heaven. Well, unless your clock is turning. Not the way the scribes and Pharisees' clock is turning. That's the new righteousness. A different level of righteousness. A different kind of righteousness. A, 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 above a moral righteousness to a spiritual righteousness. So we don't just refrain from killing a man. We do not hate the man. And we don't just simply abstain from hating him. We love that person. And now the clock is turning in the right direction. That's what Matthew is asking for. So is John. Chapter 3, verse 7. 
Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. It's Matthew's message in all the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Roman message in the 16 chapters of Romans. The righteousness of God. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. How do we know that we love? How do others know that we love them? As God is, we are. We are born of him, and we are born to love. And as he is, we are. That's what John keeps on bringing to our attention, time after time, in this passage of scripture. That was chapter 4. Verse 7, jump down to verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world, in this present world. We're in this world, but we're not of the world. We're in this world, but we don't love this world. We're in this world, but the lust of the world, the pride of life, we, we don't want that to be part of us, because this world passes away. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Just where is this righteousness lived? It's lived in this world. We don't wait till the millennium to live this life. We live this life here in this world. This is where the probation is. This is where the light shines. This is where the testament of Jesus Christ is known in the world. This is where all men know that they have been with Jesus in this world. And I could stop here and, and ask you how we feel by now. Because everyone else knows us. And the first thing we want to do is we want to look at these verses and not just quickly, glibly pass over them and run down to the next part, get this passage read. Dale, hurry up. It's soon 9 o'clock. You're not even into chapter 5 yet. Get this thing moving. I agree with that. But just wait a minute. If, if Christ is not here, I, I'm going nowhere. If the testament of Christ is not in this life, we got no, we've got no place. We... we, we I mean, a beard in the face is going to take care of it. I mean, there's nothing to compensate for. It's either this standard or it's not there. When we talk about the Christian life, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about being a Christian. This is what it is. The person that takes that cup and that bread is saying, I'm participating in this. This is a reality in my life. Chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. If we live as Jesus lived, if we pray as he prayed, and there's a condition here, and there was one back in chapter 3, verse 22 concerning prayer. It says there, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. 
and do those things that are pleasing in his sight, which is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke ask of us. Chapter 5, verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Christ is here. He is our victory. He is our sanctification. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. I, I shouldn't close this meditation without reading verse 21. Is this external legalism? Is this a hard saying? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This is the gospel that Jesus taught and lived in all four of the gospels. And we are called to live it today here in Rockingham County, in Bridgewater, Mount Crawford, Dayton, Harrisonburg. If I'm not like Christ, I am not yet born of God. That in me which is not Christ-like must come to the altar tonight. And I must, I must seek his new and holy heart. And this is what Matthew, Mark, and Luke were talking about when they taught us self-denial. Any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. John doesn't say that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. This is death. So that we can be, so that I can be rebirthed into life. I'm going to ask you a question before I close. Did John, the Apostle John, did he believe in death to the self-life? I'd like to answer that question as you turn with me to chapter 12 of the fourth gospel. Verse 24. John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And thus tonight, I trust we have in a very brief way seen the beautiful harmony of the four Gospels. I, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, but I cannot accept somebody tramping underfoot the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ that are intended to produce godliness and Christlikeness and right wiseness in us so that we travel the same direction our Lord Jesus traveled so that the righteousness of God which is revealed by faith to faith can be seen in our lives those of us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit I trust that these words would encourage us to some very 
careful introspection. But I don't want you tonight, dear people, dear young people, whoever you are tonight, visitors, I don't want anyone here tonight to look at these holy verses and just look at yourself and your failures and mistakes and the weaknesses and things that happened just this very day that should never have taken place in your life. I want you to look at these beautiful verses we read tonight from this most holy book. And like you do what the brother said as he quoted part of that hymn to us tonight. Lift your eyes up beyond the sacred page. I, I seek thee, Lord. You are what I need, dear God. The, the Christ of this book is what I need in my life. I, I look past this to him. And I choose to believe tonight there's more than enough horsepower there to pull that disc to the field. And with the Holy Spirit, the product clutches of God, put that pin between there so I can go with him. You know, that power and working in my own life. And I look past this, not to my own failures and faults and mistakes. I look up here and see the Lamb of God that taketh away my sin. And replaced it with the righteousness of God in my life. And as I live in that faith and that light, holy things happen. And in erstwhile, very mistaken testimony. And may God bless us tonight. As we dismiss, let's stand for prayer. And dear Son of God, it's our desire to worship you tonight. It's our desire to understand your heart. It's our desire to believe who you are. It's our desire to repent of our sin. It's our desire to have a new mind and a new heart. It's our desire to have that faith that you would give us. We see it in Christ and we desire it for ourselves and we can't repent until that happens. We can't repent until we want it for ourselves. We can't repent until we are not satisfied unless it's done Christ's way and it's done Christ-wise in our lives. I pray that you would show us, oh Father, your love to us and show us your desire to be merciful to us and help us to feel your hand upon us to give us the opportunity to take hold and follow you. Rise up and follow you. Dear God, I ask your blessing upon this congregation, upon the words spoken and the hearts that receive that. I pray we look beyond the words and see the Christ who offers his life to us tonight and is able to forgive us and whose holy and precious blood cleanses us from all sin as we walk in that light. And oh God, help us to fear the darkness. Oh God, help us to fear, fear the hiddenness. Help us to fear the hidden part. Help us to fear this. If I was doing it by myself, Oh God, then we ask that your grace would be abounded in us so that your name can be glorified in this assembly and bless us as we part in peace tonight, dear Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.